Well, how do you feel when you hear the words, you've changed? You've changed. I want to show you some pictures of me when I was young. They're on the screen. These are in the depths of my Facebook photo reel. You look at those and you look at me and you're thinking, you've changed. But it's good change, right? It's good that I look, don't look like that anymore, right? You can turn them off, yeah. There is some change that is good and then there is some change that is not so good. And Jesus comes to the fourth church of seven churches that he's speaking to in Revelation, where he's giving them feedback, personal feedback, how they're going. And he's saying to the church of Thyatira, you've changed. Some of it's good and some of it not good. Now, the church to the letter to Thyatira, look, it starts like every other letter. But there's one noticeable difference that Jesus adds that he doesn't add to any other letter. Have a look with me. Verse 18. It says, these are the words of the Son of God. So right off the bat, Jesus is speaking to them and reminding that he is the Son of God. The Son of the Most High is giving them feedback. You know, a lot of people think the church needs to change in a whole bunch of ways, but here is Jesus, God himself, saying to his church how we need to change. That this is not just the average Joe or Janine, this is God himself speaking. And notice it says, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet like burnished bronze. I mean, finish the sentence for me. You can't judge me, you don't know me. Jesus, though, with his blazing eyes, he does know you. He knows you more than anyone else knows. He knows what motivates you, why you did things, why you don't do things. He knows you through and through. You cannot escape. He's the only one you cannot say, you can't judge me, you don't know me, because he does. More so than anyone else. He and he alone in his position, because he sees and knows all. Now, it's interesting. With that in mind, he starts this letter to Thyatira with feedback that is positive. He starts by highlighting good things. And I think there's a lesson here for us. You know when you ask for your opinion, hey, what do you think about that church? You know, Sydney Anglican Church, the Hill, Hillsong, that Baptist church, Pentecostal church, your old church, that hit new church, the church up the road, this church. What's the first thing come out of your mouth? Is it criticism? Is it a, a list of complaints? Because he is Jesus who knows all, and yet the first thing come out of his mouth is positivity, encouragement, finding the good. Have a look what he says. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. In other words, this church is dependable, loyal, loving, patient, all the things that you want in church, all the things you want to experience from others, isn't it? And what I love about it, it says, you're doing more than you did at first. In other words, you've changed, and it's great. That they started off loving, started off being generous, started off being hospitable, and they've grown, and you just can see that. You know, in COVID, when you, hadn't, you saw a little child before, and then 
after lockdown, they'd grown, right? Like, whoa, you've changed. Jesus is saying to the entire church, you've grown up. And it's beautiful. And Jesus rejoices, and he rejoices when he sees you change. You grow in godliness. But not all change is good. Have a look, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's just start with a J word, Jezebel. Now, remember, this is Revelation. It's not one of Paul's letters, right? So in Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism. And here, it's not referring to an actual woman, right? A literal person, but it's symbolic, proverbial. But the reason why Jezebel is used is because it's picking up someone who did exist back in the Old Testament, Jezebel, who was the worst queen out of Israel's history. She made Bloody Mary look tame, right? She was evil personified. I mean, uh, some parents, uh, Christian parents, want to name their kids after biblical names, right? And they pick all sorts of things. I know no one who's named their daughter Jezebel, right? It's like Judas. It's not a popular name, right? If you grow up in the Pentecostal church, you might have heard the phrase, oh, that woman, she's got a real Jezebel spirit, right? And you knew it wasn't a compliment, right? Jezebel, still in our minds, is negative. And here, in symbolic, for a type of teaching, just like the real Jezebel, that leads God's people away, leads God's people to worship anything but God and turn their affections, hearts, and desires to something else. But you'll notice, what does it say? That woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Prophet. Relevant. Insightful, spiritual, modern. That the church of Thyatira was thinking, it's good, but Jesus here labeling it Jezebel is saying, no, it is more harmful than you realize. You think it's insightful. You think it's modern. You think it's relevant. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, no, no, it is Jezebel. Now, this is not new. Because you notice later it's on, it says Satan's deep secrets, referring to back at the beginning of time when Satan came to Adam and Eve with not a stick or a wad of cash or a stack of porn magazines to tempt Adam and Eve. What did he come with? An idea. He said, did God really say? I don't think you can trust him. I, don't, I think he's ripping you off. He came with an idea, and that idea led Adam and Eve to take the apple and to walk away. And that is happening at the beginning of time. It's happening in the time of Thyatira. It's happening now, where we exchange God for an experience. We exchange God for something else. Where we don't trust that God's word is good, and so we go to something else. Now, let me unpack a Jezebel belief in our culture, right? It's funnily enough similar to the Church of Thyatira, right? You've walked around Thyatira the day, you would have seen temples and statues, you know, to all sorts of uh, Roman gods, Aphrodites, for example. They call it Aphrodites, we just call it sex and sexuality. Where we, in our culture, in our time, we do the exact same thing as Adam and Eve did, where we exchange God for an experience. So let me just unpack it briefly. 
our culture's moment. It all started with Sigmund Freud, who, like your great-great-grandfather, who you probably didn't know, you don't, or you don't know, you don't know his name, you don't know what he looked like, but has influenced you in profound ways, so too Freud, who said, if you repress your sexual urges, it will harm you. And we've adopted that, and we think it's fact. And so some cultures demonise sex and sexuality, others messianise it. We think it's a saviour, and that's ours. We think it will liberate us, complete us, that we need it. And so in our culture, in our time, we are taught. What are we taught? That we cannot just engage or abstain. It needs to be embraced or denied. It's a need, like eating is. We're told it's to do with our identity, and you've got to be true to yourself, and everyone else must affirm it because your meaning is tied to that. We're told that the highest form of love you can experience is sexual romantic love, and everything else is second rate, so the single person is pitied. 40-year-old virgin, we know it's a comedy, right? Because happiness and worth is marked by very narrow terms in our culture. Are you engaged in sexual act or not? That's our world. That's what we live and breathe in our time. We think it's normal, but Jesus has come along and said, no, 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 it's Jezebel. And is misleading God's people all the time. Now, this is where verse 23 is probably the most stark and probably hit you a bit when we read it out. But it's stark for a reason. What does Jesus say? I will strike her children dead. Again, figurative, not literal. But what Jesus is saying is this kind of thinking is not going to last more than a generation. It's not going to live forever. It's coming to an end. Now, Thyatira, if you, if you lived in that era, you would know that Thyatira is all about, it's, it was known for its bronze work. And bronze was very stable and not going anywhere. And the Thyatirans thought their cultural norms, the way they see their world, was like bronze. It wasn't going anywhere. And Jesus is saying, no, it will not last a generation. You think, we think, our cultural experience, this is normal. Doesn't everyone think like this? If everyone else always going to think like this? Jesus is saying, no. As someone said, if you marry the spirit of generation, your generation, you will be a widow in the next. That not even our culture, the way that we think about all sorts of things, particularly sex and sexuality, in generations to come, they will look back on what the average Aussie thinks, and you know what they'll say? How uneducated, how barbaric, how naive. The same way you think about your great-great-parents and what they thought. If you marry your generation, the spirit of generation, you'll be a widow in the next. As Jesus says, it is not going to last forever. Only he who has feet like burnished bronze will last. He and his word. So that is why Jesus is saying to this church, what is it? You tolerate her, you embrace, you accept, but it is not good for you and it will not last. It will be quickly outdated. Now, tolerance in of itself is not, a, it's not battle, but it depends on what you're tolerating, isn't it? I mean, I've talked to a number of people this week who've experienced, because of the wet weather and the humidity, mold in your house. I don't know if you've experienced it. Just popped up, even in places that you don't normally expect. It reminded of when my wife and I used to live in Stanmore in this two-bedroom unit, and we quickly realized by living there that this place 
was a bit of a moldy place, right? You sort of see it and you quickly clean it and you get rid of it, right? You see a bit more, you quickly clean it, you get rid of it. You get all those things, those traps from Bunnings and trying to get rid of the mold and yada, yada. But it's amazing how quickly we became used to it. That you'd open up a drawer, you'd see the mold, oh, you'd close it. I'd wake up and there would be mold on my wall, right? Yeah. It wasn't until we moved out of that place that we looked back and realized that mold had a significant impact on our health. We were more sick in that time than we realized, but we had just gotten used to it. We tolerated it. And friends, you and I, it is so easy to tolerate the things of this world to make sin normal and righteousness strange. It is so easy to do. And when a church does it, it becomes sick. It's like adding a drop of lemon juice to milk. It will always turn bad. Now, why is Jesus offended by particularly Christians who embrace the world? It's, you know why? It's because God has welcomed every Christian into a reality of his making, not our own. That God has a vision, for particularly sex and sexuality, that's not determined by us, but him. I mean, it's not to be demonized, it's not to be a savior, it's a gift. You know when Adam and Eve first did it, it wasn't like God was like, what the heck? I didn't know that could happen. He invented it. It was his idea, a gift, a gift to be used in marriage with freedom and safety. It's a lot like a fire, great in a fireplace, warm and purified. Outside a fireplace can do a lot of damage and leave permanent scars. That Jesus affirms, even with our culture, we say, you're born this way. But he knows that every single one of us, every single one of us, is born broken, with our disorders out of uh, our desires disordered. All of every single one of us, and that's why Jesus came, so that you would be what born again, that you would live for Him, not for yourself. That Jesus says the greatest form of love—it ain't sexual romantic love. What is it? John fifteen: to lay down one's life for a friend. That is experience, whether you're married or single, that every single person can experience the greatest form of love. That vision is a taste of God's vision that he invites everyone into, his people, to experience. But you know what? You might know it, you might live it, but it's so easy to listen to the world around. You know, I realized... Uh, living on the North Shore, one thing that North Shoreans, whether that's a thing or not, we're very good at is filtering what comes into our stomachs. We're obsessed with making sure that certain things that we eat and certain things we don't. We look at the ingredients list, right? We make sure that there's no MSG, no artificial flavors, colors, it's organic, right? We are very particular about what we eat. We don't just eat anything. I noticed this, particularly when we did church camp a couple of years ago, and people put in dietary requirements, which is generally gluten-free vegetarian. But what you guys put in, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, the person put up and said, uh, ke- the, the chef wrote back and said, keto, it's not a dietary requirement, it's a diet, right? The chef was amazed at how particular people, us, were about what we consume, right? We're very protective of what goes into our bodies. But we don't do the same when it comes to what we watch. We don't filter or think 
What is going into my mind? We have our eyes open, mouths, and we just consume episode after episode. And that is the beginnings of tolerating, embracing. Now, we might think, yeah, but I'm an adult. I'm a Christian. It does, it will be fine, right? If you think it's not shaping you, frankly put, you're a fool. Because the devil has got you exactly where he wants. We think it's education, we think it's entertainment, he calls it education. And episode after episode, he is shaping you to think a certain way about relationships, about faithfulness, about what is normal, one after the other. Now, the solution, right, is not to go Amish, right? It's not to, that, that's not the, but the solution is to do what you do when it comes to food, to think about what goes into you, to think about what is, it, what is this teaching me? Because it is teaching you something, and not just to gobble it up, right? I mean, there has been some shows where I've been watching and I've had to stop. I would love to know what happens at the end of the day. It's a great storyline, but I've had to stop because I knew that it was shaping me in ways that was not helpful. Now, I say that not to boast, right? because boasting is something that I can do, but you can't. No, no, this is something you can do, but it's encouragement. Do not just lap it up. Be insightful. Filter. What is this teaching me? What is it shaping me? Because it is educating you. It is not just entertainment. Now, how do we respond to our culture? Any culture. But have a look what Jesus says. Here's how he responds. Verse 21. I will give her time to repent of her immorality. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. The first thing I want you to notice from that verse is this. God's first reaction to a people who live by his very being but reject him is what? Patience. Mercy. Time. Jesus doesn't rush to judgment. When Adam and Eve took that evil, isn't that, you're gone. No, no, no. He is patient. He is patient. He's given a lot of time. Even those who are Jezebel-type people who advocate and celebrate a different world to the one God has made it. He gives time. And should not we? But time is not endless. Patience is not forever. God does bring judgment. Why? Because she is unwilling. Verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. You know, often we think about God's judgment in terms of hail and brimstone, etc. But you notice here that phrase, bed of suffering, is that often God's judgment to people is along the lines of an idea where you've made the bed, now lie in it. As Romans 1 says, God gives you over to what you want. God's often judgment for us is if you want it, if you want to do it your way, God gives it to you and you experience the consequences of that. That is one of his normal ways of judgment when it comes to this earth. And so God is saying, well, if you want sex to be number one in your life, you can have it, but you'll experience a profound unsatisfaction. That if you want your life all to be about relationships, then you'll experience the loneliness that comes with that. If you want your identity to be tied up in your sexuality, it will bring an insecurity that you can never go. If you want 
porn to be a distraction from all the bad things, then you'll be distracted from all the good things too. He gives you over. You want to worship anything other than God, and he gives it to you. And lo and behold, you experience that judgment. It is not good. As Psalm 7 says this, a man makes a pit, digs it out, and falls into the pit that he has made. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have gone down this road and experienced a profound emptiness, a hollowness, where you've gotten everything that you wanted, and it has just been horrible. Perhaps you're in that pit right now. Perhaps you're in the hole that you have dug. And here's the hope. If Jesus is patient enough to offer mercy to Jezebel-like people, then you too, you too. Why Jezebel-type people walked away is not because it was not possible for God to forgive, because she was unwilling. Jesus is willing, are you? To wash you clean, to welcome you, to get you out of the pit, to save you, to redeem you, to welcome you home. But there's some of us who know that and have experienced that, but you find yourself digging another hole as a Christian. Some of you have gotten out that spade and you're holding on to Jesus, but you're holding on to also things that you shouldn't be holding on to. Perhaps you're married and you're flirting with someone who is not your spouse. Perhaps you're holding on to an addiction that you know you should give up and thinking, ah, oh, it's normal, it's just my eyes, it'll be okay. Perhaps you're holding on to certain, certain thinking by putting words in God's mouth that he never said or believing that marriage is the ultimate and singleness is less and you need to repent. Perhaps deep down you're believing, actually, God, I don't think he wants my best. I think he's ripping me off. The solution is to do what Rick did this morning. Repentance. To come to him, to wake up and see the way in which you've been living is not right. To see what the blazing eyes of Jesus see and to come to him and tell him what you've been tolerating, what you've been doing as a child of God. To tell him these are the things I have changed, these are the things I'm doing, knowing that he sees it all. He knows what happens when you close that bedroom door. He sees all, but he wants you to come and own it to him and say, I'm doing this, knowing that he's there, ready to restore, ready to forgive. His arms are open to embrace you. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but James, I'm just, a, I'm just one Christian, right? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader. It's just, who cares? But Jesus does. And I'll tell you why. Because the church of Thyatira was a nobody place in a nobody town and a nobody church. The rest of the churches, Ephesus, Pergamon, they would have to Google, right, where Thyatira is. No one even knew where it was. So insignificant. And yet Jesus spends the longest letter to this church because he cares about every single one of his children. No matter how insignificant you are, he cares about what you do and how you behave. Because he loves you and he wants you to follow him in his ways. But you know, not all are in the same boat. 
You know when you're in school and the teacher put the whole class in detention, even though only three of them did the wrong thing? You don't remember that? You know, you're all in detention. You're like, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. It generally affects a teacher who's struggling, right? But Jesus is not struggling. He doesn't blanket his whole church. He knows there are some who've changed and it's not good, but he knows there are some who have not changed, and that is good. Have a look, verse 24. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold on to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And I'm aware that in this church, in this congregation, there are some like this who don't, who, who have not changed, who are seeking to fight that battle, that battle of faithfulness and purity. See, Jesus doesn't say to the rest of you, ah, oh, those good Christians who've never done anything wrong. Oh, those good Christians, you know, heterosexually linked. No, no, no. What does he say? To those who do not hold on to the teaching. The rest of those in Thyatira, I'm sure, have done things that would have made you blush, right? But they know that the blazing eyes of Jesus sees them, and it is a comfort because he sees and he's forgiven and washed, and they want to live for him. But Jesus knows it's not easy. It's a, it's a, it's a burden. It's hard. It, the battle is not easy. They, and I presume you, when it comes to being a Christian in a sexualized culture, is not easy. Do you think they felt like fools? You bet. Do you think they felt like idiots? Yes. Do you think they felt like they were missing out on all the time? Absolutely. See, if he, as a Christian in this world, in our era, if you hold on to the fact that you believe what the Bible says we're married between a man and a woman, you will feel more and more like an idiot and uneducated. If you're a Christian who's not engaging in sexual jokes at workplace or going to places that you should not go, you will feel like an idiot and a fool. If you're a Christian couple engaged, not married, and ask for two separate rooms until you get married at a family vacation, you will feel weird. If you're the Christian with same-sex attraction and wanting to live God's way, you will feel odd in this world. Anyone who follows Jesus will feel like a stranger in this world. Jesus knows it. He knows what you are experiencing for those who are fighting to live for Jesus and love like him. And so Jesus ends with this promise. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with the iron scepter, dash the pieces of the pottery, just as I've received authority from my father. Jesus' promise is not the kind of promise you'd expect. But what he's saying is the future is you will share in my authority. You will be co-heirs in the age to come. You will be kings and queens. I mean, I've been watching Succession, right, where there's a father who does not want to share his power with his kids. Jesus ain't like that. He wants to share his power with you. That is the future of heaven. You know, we are so obsessed in our culture of not being on the wrong side of history, but Jesus is saying, no, be obsessed with being on the right side of eternity. That is your future. 
In this world, you may feel like at the bottom, the dregs, but in the age to come, you will be heroes. In this world, you may feel like the world is against you, but in the age to come, the world will be yours. As someone put it this, if you rule your passions and urges in this life, you will rule the nations in the next. But there's one sneaky extra little promise. Verse 28. I will also give that one the morning star. You know, the morning star is is after a long, dark night. Hope that the day is coming. And Jesus said, this life for the Christian, it may feel like a long, dark night. But hope is coming. And you know what that morning star is? Revelation 22 tells us what it is. It's Jesus himself. That he will give you himself, that he will be yours and you will be his. And you know what's interesting, friends? All the longings that we have, that we want from sex and marriage and relationships, deep down is really just a longing for Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds weird, right? But behind this pursuit of sex and and marriage is a desire for intimacy, acceptance, to be known, to be satisfied, to be wanted, to be complete. And you will never, ever get it. You will only get it from Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when you see the morning star face to face, you will experience it. Now, I'd love at this moment to tell you an illustration that would capture what that's like, but I got nothing. Because nothing on this earth will even come close to that experience. You have to experience it for yourself. To have that completeness, that love, that intimacy, that wholeness when you see Jesus face to face. That day is coming. That is your future. That as saved sexual sinners who are seeking to live for Jesus, we will see him face to face. And that moment, that experience will be out of this world and will become our norm. Whoever it is, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. I'm going to pray in a moment, but brothers and sisters, after this service down here, if you want to pray with someone, whatever that may be, there'll be people, brothers and sisters, to pray alongside, to walk alongside, to pray for you after the service. But let me pray now. Lord Jesus, you know us. You know us through and through. You know us like no one else does, and that is scary because we like to hide. We like to pretend, but there's no pretending when it comes to you, Lord Jesus. So we ask, knowing that you, Lord Jesus, are a good doctor. You diagnose well. You diagnose accurately. But you also bring us medicine, and the medicine is you, Lord Jesus. That this church, like most churches, is a church full of sinners, sinners who have sinned, whether sexually, whether we have turned our back on you, whether we have embraced the world and tolerated in ways that we shouldn't, Lord. So we ask, Lord, that we'd come to you again, knowing that your arms are open, and we ask that we would change our minds and live the changed life. And we ask, Lord, as we seek to live for you, knowing that Satan 
will use any means to get us to question your word, God. You will get us to any means to question that you are good. So we ask, Lord, that we would resist and we come again to see your vision for our life, come into the reality of your making, not our own, and that we will truly live for you. Hold on to you and your word, not hold on to the teachings of our culture. And we look forward to meeting you, the morning star, Lord Jesus, where there everything will be right, everything will be good, everything will be whole. Amen.